you can take your Bible and turn to John 1. We're in 12 and 13 again. And we are 2 verse 13 actually, and I'm going to review over verse 12 with you again to catch us up, to put us all on the same page uh, together. While you're turning there, I do want to mention quickly uh, that I had the opportunity to um, meet personally David Sitton. And you're going to hear his name a lot probably in the future past today. Um, In 1977, David Sitton was in training for mission school when a man came from Papua New Guinea and told about a particular people group that he was trying to break into for the first time ever. And he looked at a young man, David, sitting in his 20s then with a young wife and no children, and after the meeting went to him and said, David, you can go with me and we can reach these people for Jesus. He was um, speaking of a tribe of natives who at that time had never been contacted by anybody known to us outside of their 2,000 people who lived in the jungle in Papua New Guinea. And so he left with his wife and this other gentleman and another two, there were three missionaries. They hacked their way through the jungle for five days, climbed peaks 14,000 feet high, crossed waterfalls and rivers to reach a group of people 2,000 big. And that's, if, if you're thinking about it, that's as, almost the size of Jacksonville that had never, ever been contacted by the outside world. When they got there, these people had never, just think about this, they had never, this 1977, they had never seen a wheel. Never seen a wheel. They brought in with them small carriages that had wheels on them and the natives literally ran to them like gods and bent down to watch this thing rolling, their heavy burdens, instead of them carrying them like pack mules. Never seen a wheel. 1977. They had definitely never seen motorized vehicles. They had never seen uh, a written language in their life. They had no coded language. This is where his ministry began. And he's been there ever since. And he's faced death. He said, I I don't really know how many times I've faced death. I know that I have been literally threatened with machetes 15 times by different people, different men, warriors, and the Lord has spared my life. Your life somehow changes when you shake hands with a man and look into the eyes of a man who really has the passion of the Apostle Paul. When Paul writes in Romans 15 verse 20 and says, it is my great desire to speak of this Jesus among those who have never heard His name I do not want to build on a foundation laid by others, but I want to go lay a foundation. I've never met a man like him, but I did this week. I tell you that to tell you that's Papua New Guinea. Most of you won't even know where that is. If you go look at a world atlas, it's down near Australia, uh, just below Australia and New Zealand, and it's near, the, it's called Micronesia, the area just below Indonesia. Uh, it's a very odd country. A lot of facts about it, trivial facts that, Interesting, but not that important. This missionary got a passion for Mexico. 
totally geographically different. Mexico in North America because he found that there was a group of unreached people literally 26 hours car drive from Brownsville, Texas. Let that sink into your mind. These people have never been touched by the outside world and they live 26 hours from the most modern country in the world. Never. No hint of the gospel in their culture. So he sets out with a passion for these people. And so they reach some people, uh, contact some of these people on fishing islands out in the Gulf of Mexico. They come to the Isle of Men. That's the name of the island. And when they arrive on their ships, their boats, fishing boats, a, a lady later known as Cameron Akoa ran to the ocean and was weeping as they came to shore. And remember I said previous to him going, nobody knew that they had ever heard from the outside world. She, through a translator, told him that 37 years, it had been 37 years since anybody came to their island, anybody from anywhere outside of their little group. There was 50 of them on the island. They were fishermen by trade. She wept because her dad had led her to Jesus Christ just before he died. And for all of her life, she was now in her 40s, she had prayed that God would send somebody to preach the gospel to her people. And when she saw white men coming, who her daddy had described to her, she knew God had finally answered her prayer of 37 long years. And now they're preaching the gospel among the people of the Isle of Men. And David Sinton's passion is that they changed the name of Isle of Men to something akin to the Isle of the Glory of God. I tell you these stories because I want you to understand that Mezcatal, Mexico is only 26 hours from the most gospel-saturated world peace on the globe. Not only is it near America, it's near the Bible Belt. You could go drive to Atlanta get in the airplane and be there in two and a half hours. We received from Christ a great commission. As you're going, make disciples of all men, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them all things I've commanded you. Lo, I'm with you always, even to the ends of the earth. The ends of the earth. And we're not talking about the ends of the earth. We're talking about Mexico and North America. 26 hours from our country. They need the gospel. And we as a church need to be a part of it. And I'm going to hopefully in days to come share with you ways that we can be a part of it. Ways that you can be a part of it. And your family can be a part of it. But if I learned something this past week that I had always rolled in the back of my mind and tried to ignore is that the reason the gospel today is not going forth from our country the way it once did is because we have progressively become more concerned with our own selfish wants and desires and we are unwilling to sacrifice 
to the level it takes to reach people in Papua New Guinea. There was an age when they were willing to sacrifice everything, the great missionary age, but that day has come and gone. And now in America, we sit unpersecuted, not suffering, and we read in the Bible as if these people don't exist anymore. And so it's my responsibility and it's your responsibility to train up among us men and women who would have a zeal to go to reach others. Not in Papua New Guinea first, but in Jacksonville, Alabama. And it's, our, it's my desire to breathe into you a desire that when we see the world, we would see two kinds of people and only two kinds lost and saved. That is what Galatians means when it says that when we come to the cross, there is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, but that we are all equal in Christ. I believe in my own heart, and I had to confess this week, and I am in front of you because I believe the large percentage of you in this church are guilty of the same sin. We are so culturally motivated, so racially minded, and so ethnically ignorant that we do not even reach ethnicities and races in our own city, much less in Mexico or Papua New Guinea. The reality is culture matters. It does matter, but it is not a barrier to sharing the gospel with lost men and women. And I can't say that honestly, and I don't think many of you can say that honestly, that when you look at a man, you see lost or saved. Most of us are still caught in our rut of dividing people. And so I'm going to, in the weeks to come, hopefully, and our leadership here will spread a vision that this church can be involved in, in our community first, and then to the whole world of seeing people as lost and saved and taking the gospel to the world. Now... Now that I've said that, again, I thank you for the opportunity to go and be filled to the brim. I can't explain what I saw this week. I tried to think of some eloquent way to put it, and I'm not very good at that. All I can say is um, I was challenged and changed. 2,000 pastors, 26 nations represented, singing, praising, reciting, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was the church. I can actually say I've sat among the universal church. I've sat there. I've seen it. I shared this a little bit with Amy. I want to share with you because it just changed my life. 20 Hispanic-speaking brothers sat next to me on Tuesday night. They had to have translators. They couldn't understand English, but they had been struggling to worship in English all week. So I'm kind of watching them out of the corner of my eye and singing and they're worshiping the best they can and they're singing about every third word and they're just doing the best they can. The translator's telling them what it's saying in Spanish, but they're trying to sing in English out of respect for our culture, trying to be a part of the body. But you can't help when you're in that situation to see that culture is still dividing us and, and, and that it's kind of odd, you know? And then on the screen, they were watching the screen 
on the screen came Spanish words to the song we were singing. They pulled the translators out of their ears. Smiles broke across their face. Tears burst out of their eyes. 2,000 people were singing in Spanish and they were able to sing right along with them. And they began to rejoice. They began to hug one another. They began to hug people in front of them, people behind them. They began to proclaim the name of Christ. I don't know what they were saying, but something about Jesus, Jesus Christo. I, I don't know what they were saying, but I know they were saying something about Christ and something about Him being great and something about Him being a unifier instead of a divider and something about the ground at the cross being level for those who come through the blood of Christ so that we all can worship. You know, it's interesting to me, that, and I thought of this in that moment, it's interesting to me that we believe the gospel solves every problem we face in our world except racism. We don't think it solves that problem because I hear so many of us saying, when we get to heaven, we'll all be with Jesus around the throne. I tell you, it ought not be that way. We ought to be together in this world. We ought to worship together now because the gospel unites. It does not divide. And when we see the world, we should see it through the eyes of Jesus Christ, lost men and saved men, and preach the gospel. The only hope for unification in, in our culture, in our church, in grace fellowship, forget the nation, in us, the only hope is Jesus Christ and the gospel. That's the only hope. There can't be some false facade of, I don't, you know, you know, I don't see your color, I don't see your race. Yes, you do. The point of the gospel is not that I don't see it. The point of the gospel is I don't let it divide me from you and I accept you full-fledged as a brother in Christ. That's the point of the gospel. And so, I've been changed. I think I'm humbled that you would let me go away for a few days and be a part of it. I'm humbled and thankful and I hope and pray that it changes me in such a way that I can help to bring that change into your life so that it's real for us here at Grace Fellowship. John chapter 1 verse 13 because... This gospel is what we're talking about in John. For the past two weeks, we've been looking at the truth of salvation found in verse 12. Salvation is simple. If a man will be saved, he must receive Christ by believing on His name. Belief includes, we said, notition, knowledge, facts, essentia, emotions, and will. And it includes fiducia, that part of faith, that part of believing that causes us to cling to Christ and to Him alone as our hope, to forsake all others and hold only to Jesus Christ as hope for salvation. Then we saw that salvation is delightful. We're born in the fallen state of separation from God. We're born in it. The truth is, we're prodigal sons who have wasted our living, but God, who is rich in mercy, has accepted us by the blood of Jesus Christ and by His and based on His finished work. We are accepted. It's is Jesus who John says in verse 12 gives us the power. We also said that means authority to become children of God. He gives us the authority to become children of God. 
It's based on Him. It's His authority that He's giving to us. By the authority of Jesus, we stand before God justified, righteous, perfected. That's part of what makes salvation so amazing. We are fully accepted as children of God based on the free gift of Jesus Christ. That's why we can sing and shout, Give me Jesus! Give me Jesus! You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. So what we've concluded this far is that salvation is granted to everyone Everyone who fully trusts in the name of Jesus Christ to give them authority to stand in the presence of God. It's simple and it's delightful. Now I want us to turn to our attention to verse 13. Verse 13 reads, Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. As we move through verse 13, it's very important that we see these two truths, two great needs in regard to salvation. Number one, we are in need to be made spiritually alive or born again. We're in need of that. You see that at the end, but born of God. We secondly need to be forgiven of our sin and set free from guilt. Verse 12 dealt with the problem of guilt and sin. Jesus did that. In verse 12, we have an active Jesus Christ who forgives our sin and removes our guilt and gives us authority to stand before the Father. All those who believe in His name. But we still have this issue of being born again. We we still haven't resolved this problem. John, in his writing, comes to verse 13 with the plan of how to remove the problem of needing to be born again. That's where we are. Salvation is simple. Salvation is delightful. Salvation is mysterious. Salvation is mysterious. We're all born of the flesh. Hold your place and look at John 3, verse 6. This is Jesus speaking. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. It says in the first part of that verse that we are all born in the flesh. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. I want you to see this. This needs to be a highly biblical message because it is going to offend your personhood. It's going, this message is going to offend who you are. It may offend how you've been brought up. But it is truth. It is from the Word of God. Ephesians 2 verse 1. And you who were dead in trespasses and sin. Everybody. Paul is speaking to everybody in Ephesus. Everybody in the church there. Born in sin. Born dead in trespasses and sin. So we're all born in the flesh. Romans 5.12 explains that to us. Although I must admit I'm ignorant really. Um, Well, I'm just ignorant. But especially in, in the understanding of these verses. These are difficult verses. We skip them often when we're reading through Romans. You know, we get to verse 5, we kind of muddle over them and move on to the next. Don't ask too many questions. It's too hard to understand. Listen to what Paul writes in his manifesto on salvation, Romans. He says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, I thought about this all week. 
I particularly tried to hone in on it last night. I've been reading a lot in Jonathan Edwards and some other men about these verses. And I go with what I think is a profound idea to my wife. And she says, that's the way I've always believed. I told you, I'm ignorant. I, I, you know, I, I make things hard that aren't hard. But I want to say to you, it, it doesn't seem right. Verse 12 does not seem right. Look at it from a human perspective. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because of one man. It, it, it doesn't seem right. And this is the concept of original sin as it's taught in the Scripture. We're on the same page. Adam sinned and in Adam everybody sinned. But the problem enters in because sin is not genetic. Hear that. There's no DNA code to eradicate here. That's not why people are born in sin. Not because Augustine had this wrong understanding that it was passed seminally through the birth, through the genetic code in some way. Some odd thing. That the fall changed the genetic code of humankind. That, that's not taught to us in Scripture. That's a man's idea to explain original sin because it's so hard to understand. That we're all born of the f- blood. That's where we are in the text. I don't want you to think, I haven't forgot the text. We're all born in the flesh. But it doesn't make sense, does it? That one man sinned and then everybody's held accountable for his sin. Everybody's made a sinner because of his sin. We know it's true. Psalm 51.5 David says, I was wrought out in the lower places of the earth in iniquity and sin I was born. In iniquity and sin I was born. Romans 5 tells us we were born in iniquity and sin. We're all transgressors. We've all sinned. We've all gone out of the way. More more to the point, Romans 6.16 says we are born slaves of sin. That's a great verse. Romans 6.16 says you are either slaves to sin or you're slaves to righteousness. That ought to, you know, offend you. That's why Paul wrote it that way. He wanted to offend us who think we're so far above the slave class. And they're so degenerate and so helpless. And he says, you're right there. You're either a slave to unrighteousness or you're a slave to righteousness. We're in the case. We're born slaves of unrighteousness. Because of what Adam did, we are guilty. We're held accountable because of his sin. Original sin is passed to us. We're dead in our sin, according to Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. We're hopeless in our natural state. John 3, 6 says, That which is of the flesh is of the flesh, and that which is of the Spirit is spirit. Do you see the clear division Jesus makes? You're in either this category or that category. If you're in the flesh... You're in the flesh. Romans 8 says, if you're in the flesh, you can't understand the things of the Spirit. You can't even hope to understand it. You're hopeless in the flesh. So we are born in the flesh. And it's clear that we're born in the flesh. So why are we implicated? Because I want to wrap that up, that original six. I don't want you to think I doubt it. I believe it 100%. But this is where you have to land. This is, I think, the biblical perspective is this. We are guilty with Adam because God has deemed it to be this way. By His sovereign, omnipotent, omniscient, all-powerful, all-glorious will, He has said in Adam, everybody is sin. Everybody has fallen under the curse. 
I'm not left with the impression, and I've studied all the verses, that it had to be that way except that God made it that way. Okay? So this is one of those points of understanding in the Scripture where we say, this is big boy league. Beyond big boy league, this is God league. This is the mysterious part I can't explain to you. Why everybody fell in Adam. Why God didn't just wipe them off the earth and start over. I don't know. I can't answer those questions. The Bible doesn't tell me that except to say he deemed it to be this way. That in Adam, sin would end the world, death through sin, and then the whole race would face death and sin because of him. So that's my end. That's what Amy said she's always believed. So I should have just believed it instead of asking all these questions. We need to be born again. So we know we're born in the flesh. We need to be born again. That which is of the flesh is of the flesh. That which is of the Spirit is of the Spirit, Jesus says in John 3, verse 6. And He goes on to say in verse 7, Do not marvel. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Don't marvel at it. Look back. Verse 3. Nicodemus has come to him. He's a Pharisee. He understands the law. And he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher. Come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, I like it when Jesus just goes off on a tangent. Somebody comes making a statement. There was no question asked. Nicodemus didn't say anything to the sort about how to get to the kingdom. He just said, we know you're come from God because you do these wonderful signs and nobody could do them unless he was from God. And Jesus says his own teaching. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Talk about shock value. He's talking to the Jew of the Jews, the Pharisee of the Pharisees, Nicodemus. And he says, you know all those things you've been doing all these years. I don't know how old Nicodemus was at this point, old enough to be a Pharisee. All those things you've been obeying and doing by your heritage, you got to be born again. Nicodemus asked the question that you ought to be asking right now. Can a man enter into his mother's womb a second time and be born again? What is this being born again? And then Jesus says, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, unless one is born of water physically and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So we need to be born again. But how are we born again? The question is how? How? Well, verse 13 in chapter 1 answers the question. John 1, 13. Not of the blood. In Jewish culture, blood is the life. It is the heritage. Leviticus 17, 11. I'm reading through the Bible this year. You know, when you read Leviticus 17, 11, you get to it, it says, it says this. Life is in the blood. And John says to this Jewish audience, you can't enter the kingdom of God by your blood. What does he mean? Heritage. They had a long heritage. They had a long history that said we are children of Abraham, the father of the faith, right? We deserve to be in the kingdom because we are Jews. Very culturally minded people. Very uh, ethnocentric. Very culturally averse to their own, to other cultures. They hate other cultures. Other cultures are unclean, unwanted, unholy. We're holy. We're a nation of priests by our blood, by our right, who we are as humans. Not of the blood, he says. If you want to be born again, it's not of the blood. 
here's a pair of, uh, here's the uh, here's this this phrase refers to that heritage so it's not of your heritage it's not of your blood some of you in here come from a long lineage of preachers or christian women or some church going people and i tell you it is no good to you except that you heard the gospel that's the only good it is for you it doesn't get you in the kingdom because your mama and your grandmama and your great-grandmama and your great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmama came over on the Mayflower and prayed there at Plymouth Rock. That doesn't make you a Christian. Every generation is responsible, John is saying. You can't come into the kingdom born of the blood. You can't. It's not a race thing. That's why it's so key. People say, well, you know, I've, I've even made dumb statements like this. Well, you know, if God wanted those people to be saved, He'd make them kind to the gospel. So when we went to them, they'd just receive it. If, 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 I, I started reading, and you know what? The Apostle Paul went to some very hostile cultures with the gospel. He had the marks to prove it. But it never stopped going. And preaching the gospel. Because it's not by their blood. And it's not by their hope. And he was persecuted mainly by the Jews. These people that were supposed to be getting in because they were the sons of Abraham. Jesus destroys all talk of race. He destroys all talk of your hope and your heritage. He tells these very same Pharisees like Nicodemus. Don't take pride in the title children of Abraham. If God wills, he can raise up the children of Abraham from these rocks. I can do what he wants. He doesn't need your heritage. Nor of the will of the flesh. Now the will of the flesh in this verse is very key. It's a reference to our natural affections. Our deepest desire. That's what it's opinion to. You're not born of the blood. Your heritage. You're not born of the will of the flesh. Your deepest desire. Your deepest natural desire. Again, men like Edwards and Piper... And Calvin and Luther have helped me. They've tutored me in this understanding of these verses. The deepest desire, Jonathan Edwards would say, is our motivation. It is our desire that motivates us to do whatever we do. Now, I, I want you to think you operate this way. You really do, don't you? The Super Bowl is coming on at 5.30 today. And there's going to be a lot of people in here deeply motivated to watch the Super Bowl. Some more than others. But there's a deeply motivated. It's your deepest desire. And at that moment, if your deepest desire is to watch that ball game, it doesn't matter what goes on around you. Your children could be killing one another. Your wife could be in total darkness, depression, and you'd be like, I'll get to it after the game. This is my deepest desire. You are going to do what your deepest desire calls for you to do. Your natural tendency is to follow your desires. And John is attacking that desire. He's saying you cannot be born of your blood and you cannot be born of your deepest natural motivation. But why? Because you're born in trespasses and sin. Your deepest motivation is for self-love, as Jonathan Edwards calls it. Self-love. Now, before you go too far in the wrong direction there, self-love, though it is natural, is not always evil. Jesus says... Love your neighbor as yourself. You see, the natural self-love is selfishness. 
I want what's good for me. If God is good for me, then I'll follow God. If God gives me good things, I'll follow God. If God promises me eternal life with my dead grandma, I'll go with Jesus. Or if wine and drink are good for me, then I'll follow that. If sex is what turns me on and that's, that is my thing, that is my deepest motivation, then I'm going to live my life for the flesh and for that sexual desire. All of us live, if your deepest desire is to fulfill the American dream, you are doing it today. I guarantee you, you are hard after that deepest desire of your natural flesh. And it's this desire that John says cannot save you. Because your deepest natural desire in your natural self, the way you were born, is dead in trespasses and sin. And it will always seek to serve itself and not to seek after God. So, it's not the blood. It's not the will of flesh, nor the will of man. You cannot gain standing by sheer human determination. You can't will yourself into the kingdom of God. You can't say, I'm going to stop sinning. I'm going to be better. I'm going to be moral. You may be moral. You may be religious. You may do all the right things. But your motivation is naturally for your self-preservation, not for Jesus Christ. And therefore, it is sin before God no matter what you do. Even, Paul says, my good was sin. Isaiah says, even my righteousness is as, it, is as filthy rags. Why? Because it was motivated out of the desire of the human heart. And the human heart is wicked and exceeding above all things. So the will of man. You cannot be born today by willing yourself into the kingdom. That, that statement should, if you are lost here today, offend you. And I want you to hang in there. Because our culture is so individualistic. It teaches that it is our desire and it is our will that determines I captain my own ship. Our poets even talk this way. I'm the captain of my own ship. I'm the pilot of my own life. If I go somewhere, I make the decision to do it. It's all about I. Who I am in my heritage, who I am in my passion or my deepest motivation, who I am in my determination, that's how I'm going to get where I want to go. And John says you can't get there. You cannot get to heaven based on these things. You cannot even will yourself there. So he leaves us hopeless in the flesh. And then he says, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God, but of God, to be reborn, regenerated, given new life. God must do it sovereignly. You cannot be born again unless God does it himself. And it's not just the Apostle Paul who believes this. Jesus spoke this way. Not only did Jesus speak this way, but James, if you'll turn to James, his brother spoke this way. John, James 1.18 says, of His own will He brought us forth by the word of truth. Of His own will He brought us forth in the word of truth. That we might be a kind of first fruits of the creatures. Ephesians 2, 4 through 9. We read Ephesians 1, 
for good reason. It's chronological in its take on salvation. And it continues in Ephesians 2 where it says that all of us are sons of disobedience. And then it comes down to Ephesians 2, 4. And listen to this. But God, but God, not born of blood, not born of the will of the flesh, not born of the will of man, but of God. And here, Ephesians 2, 4 says, But God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, regenerated us, rebirthed us, brought us into the spiritual realm. That's what that's about. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the authority and God is the one who sovereignly makes a man alive so that He might believe and receive Jesus Christ. And it's scriptural. It's not philosophy. It's not the reasoning of some theologian named Calvin or Luther or Edwards or, or name them, Sproul or any of these men. Forget them. If you're struggling with the sovereignty of God today, forget titles. Cling to the truth of Scripture. You are in the flesh if you are lost here today and you have no hope. You will never will yourself by your heritage, by your own desire or by your sheer determination to believe and receive Jesus Christ. You may will that you believe some facts. You may will that you assent to those facts like the demons of hell do, but you will not trust Him lest He make you alive. That's your only hope. And He has done it for the praise of His riches and mercy through Jesus Christ. Not of the will of man, not of the blood, not of the will of the flesh, but of God. Jesus wisely chose in John 3 to show us the image of rebirth and the image of the wind. And He says in John 3, look, speaking to Nicodemus, John 3, verse 8, He starts out, excuse me, in verse 5 through 7, He says, don't marvel that I said to you must be born of the Reborn or born again or regenerated. Now, I've got to ask you a simple question. If your salvation is by your own doing and it has nothing to do with the sovereignty of God, how will you be reborn? How will you do it? Birth is not in our control the first time and neither is it in our control the second time. When you were born to your parents... Did you say, oh, I like Mr. and Mrs. Weathers. They seem like nice enough folks. They live in a nice city, Columbus, Mississippi. There's pretty good peace there, a good Christian school. They've got good genetic DNA, so I'll be good looking. I think I'll be born to them. I think I'll be born to them. God, order me up. Deborah Weathers, that's who I want. You had nothing to do with your birth. Nothing. Your mother and your father, Christian or non-Christian, participated, joined themselves together, and the seed was planted in the womb by God Himself. 
And He formed you in your, inner, in your mother's innermost parts and made you the individual that you are. And you were born. And you know what? I've yet to meet a person that gets offended by that. I've yet to meet a person that said, now they may talk this way, you know, I wish I'd never been born, but when you get down to it and you lay life out in front of them, they say, I'm so glad I was born. If I wasn't born, I wouldn't be here. You know, it's kind of like Gary Smalley on... Uh, on uh, Saturday Night Live, if a tree falls in the woods and nobody's there to hear it, does it make a noise? You know, if I wasn't born, I wouldn't be here. Well, yeah, you're right. And you have no problem with God being sovereign over that. So Jesus gives you that, and he says, you've got to be born again. You've got to be regenerated. And the question immediately comes, how can I do it? And he says, you can't. Verse 8. Look at verse 8. The wind blows where it wills. You can hear it. But you don't know where it comes from and you don't know where it's going. Jesus answers the question, you can't be born by yourself. You can't climb back in your mother's womb and be born in the Spirit. If you could climb back in your mother's womb, you'd still be flesh. You can't do it. God can. And that is the glory of our salvation. That God, who is sovereign, who can do this, of His own choosing, by His own will, disregard us. Thank God He disregarded me and my natural motivations. And He said, I'll take Him. I'll rebirth Him. I'll give Him the gospel. If God had saw fit, again, I bring this up. It's very important you think about this because I know in your flesh you're rebelling. And believe me, I'm, I've been where you are. So I'm not preaching at you. I'm preaching with you, encouraging you to accept the truth of God's whole counsel. Nobody here today in America is complaining because they weren't born to those unreached people in Papua New Guinea. Sovereignly, God could have birthed you there where you would never hear the gospel and you would die and go to hell. But He didn't birth you there. He birthed you in the United States. Not only in the United States, but probably in the Bible Belt for most of us where we would hear the gospel weekly, day after day after day after day. And nobody complains. Nobody complains. And so all I'm saying is set the flesh aside, look at the Scripture, and see how sovereign and how wonderful our God is that He would say then, I've birthed you here and now I'm going to rebirth you again. I'm going to give you spiritual life so that you might have faith and receive my son and be saved. I'll say this. Prideful people who cannot accept God as sovereign have no place in heaven. They have no place in heaven because in heaven he is supreme. In heaven he is worshipped rightly. If it offends you that He would be sovereign in this earth, it will offend you in eternity. And so we must submit. The call is to submit to Him. Romans nine fourteen through 16, God told Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion, and I will harden 
whom I will harden. It's very important. First John 1 John 3.1, these scriptures mean so much. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. We are children of God by His own sovereign will, and it's to the praise of His glory. And so what is the response to a message like this? Well, it could be a lot of things. I want to say this, that at Grace Fellowship, and in my heart, it is my desire to deal with the theological seesaw. And and I'll, I'll use that analogy. It's used over and over and over again in textbooks and in writings about the Bible. Just think of it this way. It's simple. A seesaw works. One's down, one's up. The other's down, that one's up. So on the seesaw, you have the doctrine of man and the doctrine of God. You can either have man at the pinnacle of your theology and say he is the captain of his own ship and so God is less. Or you can have God sovereign and man at the bottom where he rightly belongs according to the scripture, I believe, but you cannot have them both at the top and both at the bottom. They're one or the other. And so we have to make a hard choice. Either we will accept the truth of the Scripture, which places God supreme and man in the base, or we will do what modern evangelicals are doing every day. We will exalt the ability of natural man and lower the sovereignty and the glory of our God. And for me and my house, we will elevate God and we will belittle ourselves and see our only hope as Jesus Christ. And it will cause us to say what great love our Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God, not by blood and heritage. Thank God that that is not the case because I was born of a simple farmer who if it was based on position in society, I would be hopeless. Thank God that it's not the will of the flesh because my motivations are still so decrepit and sinful. So thank God it's not by that that I'm born. And thank God that it is not by the will of man, my sheer determination, because in my nature I'm determined to do things for my own self. Thank God it is of God that I'm born again. And I pray to His glory that you will see these truths and cherish these truths and wrestle with these truths in the days to come until you can say God is supreme and man is subject. Let's pray. Father, all of Scripture screams off of every page and every paragraph if we would simply read it and believe it that you are great and mighty and sovereign. And Lord, I confess that in my prideful flesh, it bothers me. There's still moments, Lord, where I want to be sovereign. Where I want to shake my fist at you. And where I want to say, I know what your will is, but I will do what I will to do. Forgive me. And Lord, it's with great, great, broken humility and passionate love that I approach you now and praise your sovereign, holy, precious, glorious, righteous name that you have birthed me in the Spirit. It was not because of who I am, but it's because of how great you are that you have done this. And so, God, please help us as a church to always keep the theological seesaw right. Help us to keep you exalted and man in his rightful place beneath you.
for those who are, are, are tottering, they don't, they don't know where they stand, Lord, I pray they would just in simple faith say, God, you're supreme. I don't understand it, I, I, but I submit to it. I, by your Spirit, make me submissive to you. Lord, if there's one in here who is wrestling and struggling, Lord, I know that feeling and I've been there. And I thank you, God, that your word, I pray that your word would be real as they study it and that they would see the truth, the great truth of salvation, that it is simple. Everyone who believes will be saved. That it is glorious and delightful in the fact that we don't have to earn it, but Jesus has paid the price and that it is mysterious, that it is only by your sovereign choice that any of us might come to salvation. Lord, I pray we would always hold these truths and the tension that Scripture presents them and that we'd always proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth until Jesus might come again and redeem His church to Himself and set up His kingdom on this earth, the new earth. It's in Your name we pray. Amen. I am sure there are many questions.